0: to our community, we follow a modified version of the Christian calendar, which is something you may or may not be familiar with. But this graphic uh, shows what it is if you want to go to it. So um, if you see, the, the start of the year begins at Advent. And so that's before Christmas. Leading up to Christmas, you start looking at the, the story of Jesus. And we did that by looking at four um, stories or, or poems or songs from the Gospel of Luke. And then we took that six weeks to engage in the process of discernment through community hermeneutic. And then we look at the story of Jesus at the beginning of every year. So we'll look at the story of Jesus through the gospel of Luke leading up to Easter. And then um, my favorite uh, part of this is that just the rest of the year is just ordinary time. They just call it. Which is just like, as someone who's terrible at naming things, I was like, that's like what I would name it. They're like, what's that time? I don't know. It's ordinary? It's like, okay, yeah, let's put that in the calendar forever and ever. Um. So we started in the Gospel of Luke in during Advent, and now we're going to pick it up. And we're picking it up, this uh, the story, in chapter 4, which is where Luke starts the public ministry of, of Jesus. And we're going to look at this passage. It's quite well known, but it's very important in the Gospel of Luke, or it's prominent in the Gospel of Luke, because uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels, or the seeing-eye Gospels. If you've read through the Gospels, you know they're very similar. John is quite different. Mark and Matthew put this story later in Jesus' ministry, but Luke moves it right to the beginning, and he's trying to say that this is a really, really important story. When Jesus announces what he's about in the Gospel of Luke, these themes will carry forward. And one of the theologians that I've been reading in preparation, his name's Fred Craddock, he says this about the passage we're going to look at today. He says, this event announces four things. Number one, who Jesus is, what his ministry consists of, what the church will be and do, and what the response will be to Jesus and the church. All of these key themes that we're going to see as we continue through our study in the Gospel of Luke. So let's look at the passage together. We're just going to walk through it this morning and see what it has to say to us. And and kind of, I'm taking this as a preparatory time for us. For the next 10 weeks or so, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. So so what are some of the themes, things we need to be thinking about? So Luke 4, starting in verse 17, it says, He, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. So he's reading from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. So this is a passage from Isaiah 61, and it speaks of this long-awaited, anointed king who will come and liberate Israel And bring all of these promises that God has made to Israel to pass. And Jesus is aligning himself with this person. And if you read through the Gospel of Luke, you'll know that Luke is also trying to tell us, this is who Jesus is, is this long-awaited Messiah. Just a couple paragraphs earlier, Jesus is baptized, and the Spirit of God comes on him. And so this is happening not only in word, but in practice as well. So Jesus, that's the first thing that we hear, is is he is this long-awaited king. And we looked at that theme a lot more when we were in the Gospel of Mark. So the Spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus reads, because he has anointed me to, to do something. Now, to do what? What is Jesus here to do? Now, the first century people who were there and who were listening would have their answer. But what's your answer to that question? I just want you to take 30 seconds and just think about it. What is your answer? Why is Jesus here? And I'm not trying to get you to give, like, the most theological answer, just an honest answer. What's the first thing that comes to mind? So, just quietly on your own, just give you 10 to 20 seconds. What is that thing that you think, if you were to encapsulate Jesus' ministry, his mission, what is it? What did he come to do? All right, whatever came to mind for you, and this is something great to hold on to and to talk about in your community groups. I want you to encourage you to just grab it, maybe write it down, whatever that thing is that you think Jesus came to do. Because it's so important. What we think Jesus is here to do profoundly affects if and where we'll see him at work. If, and if we are, are willing to receive Jesus for who he is, or if we have to reject him. And it profoundly affects what we understand our role to be as his body, the church today. So, what did Jesus come to do? Well, here's what the passage says. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now I don't know about you, but if I'm answering that question for myself, what did Jesus come to do? These are not the things that come to my mind, to be honest. They're not the first things that come to my mind. And I Bet they're not for most of us. So let's take a closer look, because this is Jesus' announcement about what his mission is going to be in the world. Let's look at this passage. Now, this passage is is what scholars call a chiasm. And uh, basically, it just means this. When we look at the passage, we kind of look at it like this. You can go to the next slide, Caleb. Okay, we just see a paragraph of text. But the way that we're supposed to look at it and understand it, and the way that the original readers would, is something like this. So the top and bottom, the ones with the A's at the front, those two match. And then the B's match, and then the C is in the middle, and that's where the emphasis is for the reader. So let's look at that. Uh, each, each section, let's take a look at each section to see what we, if we can encapsulate what Jesus is about here. So let's start with the middle stanza. It says, recovery of sight to the blind. Now, on one hand, this is super straightforward. And we'll see Jesus in the next passages. If you're reading along with the Gospel of Luke, which I encourage you to do, you'll see Jesus, and he comes to people who are physically blind, and he heals them. He restores them. He sets their sight back to the way that it should be. But the Bible also uses this word symbolically, that those who cannot see, those who are blind, even though you might have sight, you can't see what God is up to in the world. You can't see the world as it actually is. And so... We have to look at Jesus' mission and ministry as we go ahead and ask these kinds of questions. Who are the people who tend to see what God is doing? Who are the people who miss it? Who are the people who are blind? And who are the people who are restored to sight? That Jesus restored. And I think that's the word, I would say, to encapsulate what's going on here, that Jesus is coming to restore, to restore the world and restore people. So the second and fourth stanzas read like this. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and set free the oppressed. Now the Greek word here for, for release and set free, are actually, it's actually the same word. It's the word ephasis. And this word can also mean forgive. It's a bit of a word cloud in English. Different meanings. And this word is very, very important to Luke. He'll use it again and again and again. And I'm going to ca- encapsulate it or try to by saying this, that Jesus' mission is to bring freedom. That's what I think he's getting at here. And so as we go throughout the Gospel of Luke, we need to start asking this question. Who are the people, according to Jesus, who look like they're stuck? Those who are captive. Who needs to be set free? Who needs to be forgiven? And how do we do that? So Jesus brings restoration. He brings freedom. That's what this passage is saying. And then lastly, the first and last section read, Jesus has come to preach good news to the poor and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, At first glance, these don't look like they have anything to do with each other. So let's just take them um, in order. So the first statement is really clear, that the the Messiah has come to preach good news to the poor. And so as we read, we we need to expand our definition of what we think poor is. I think for most of us, we just think materially poor, people who don't have enough money. And that, that is true. That will be included. But as we read along, we need to ask ourselves, who does Jesus proclaim the good news to? And who seems to take it as good news? Those people have something about them that the Bible would call poor. Now, the second statement, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, doesn't seem to have anything in common with the first statement, other than that there's a proclamation. Something is being said here. And the year of the Lord's favor is a reference to something very deep within the story of God. So we need to take a few minutes here to talk about it, because this is where we're going. It's a very important theme for where we're going in this study of the Gospel of Luke. So, as all good themes in the Bible do, this this story starts in Genesis 1. And if you know, it's the first page of the Bible. If you know that story, the world starts in chaos, in darkness, in a situation that's not flourishing. And what happens in that situation is that God speaks. He proclaims something. And through his speech, he brings flourishing and abundance and order and light. And in Genesis 1, there's seven days or six days of creation, and it all culminates on the seventh day, the last day, where God ceases or he sabbaths, and he's... It means that he's in his rightful place, reigning and ruling, and all things are in right relationship around God. And there's a celebration of the liberation that's happened, the creative activity that's happened, and this invitation for us to join God, not only in his rest, but in extending shalom into the world. And so... If we're thinking about what Jesus says in Isaiah 61, and we look at just the first chapter of the Bible, we already see these themes emerging. The same idea that we go from darkness to light. Or if you think of it this way, in darkness you can't see, in light you can. We think of people who are in, in, um, sorry, in, enclosed or enslaved by the chaos waters, and they're liberated into freedom to become who they were, and they move from a situation of nothingness into a situation of abundance. All these themes are already happening. And there's this, also this, this theme of waiting and hope through these six days of creation to get to the seventh day, where we can actually rest and be with God. Excuse me, with God. But of course, in, in chapter three of the Bible, so just a few chapters later, we see that people reject this offer of rest. And so everything now moves in reverse order. That we see the world going back from from order to chaos, from seeing to darkness, from freedom to being enslaved, from abundance back to scarcity. And this becomes the big question for us. How do we get back to a place of shalom? How do we get back to this place of rest? Can things be restored? Is there a way for us to re-enter this story of abundance and not scarcity? And this sets up one of the fundamental tensions in the Bible, this story. Now, there's various responses by God and his people to this problem. But at one point in the story, if we zoom ahead, God uses this guy named Moses. And he brings his people who are enslaved in Egypt out. And so we already see this theme that people are enslaved and now they're free. But the people need new rhythms. They need to learn how to not live as if they're slaves, but to live as people who are uh, underneath God's reign and rule and living a life of rest. And so the book of Leviticus, specifically, sets up some of these rules. Now, I know all of you guys read Leviticus on, like, maybe a weekly or a monthly basis, so you're super familiar with everything that happens there. But one of the ideas, key ideas in Leviticus, is that it's trying to set up a situation of Sabbath for God's people. Here's how you can live into the rest of God. And so there's a couple different ways it does that. The first is probably what we're most familiar with, which is the seventh day rest, or what we might call Sabbath, or Sunday. So you let the land rest, and you let yourself rest, and you let your neighbor rest. So for Israel, what they would have to do, you think of when they're walking through the wilderness, God gives them this manna bread that uh, they have in order to sustain them. And they're supposed to gather it for six days, but on the seventh day, they don't gather it. And the vision there is that you actually live into the reality of who you are. That I'm going to, and who God is. That God is my provider. And I'm going to trust that if I don't gather on the seventh day, that there will be enough for me. So there's the seventh day Sabbath. But there's also the seventh year Sabbath, which we probably don't know about. And it's kind of like a super Sabbath. So on that seventh year, you did everything that you do on the Sabbath day, but for a whole year, you rest. And once again, if if any of you guys have ever not had a job or you've taken some time off, you'll understand this for like, like a prolonged amount of time, for like a year. That your identity starts to question, like, who am I if I'm not doing this job, if I'm not doing this thing? Maybe some of you who are on parental leave understand what this is like. And a Sabbath year is to refocus our identity. I'm not someone who produces. My, my, my deepest identity is not a farmer or this person in the economy. My deepest identity is a child of God. Someone who is provided for by him. And so it's a Sabbath year where you relive into that identity and you trust God for what he's doing. But then there was finally a seven times seven year. So it either happened on the 49th year or the 50th year. We're not sure. And this is like a super mega Sabbath. Okay? That's a technical term, by the way. Um, or you could call it Jubilee. That's the name for it in the Bible. The year of God's favor. And this is good news for everybody this year. And it was a massive celebration regardless of who you were. But it's especially good news for people who are poor, those who need restoration, or those who are enslaved and oppressed. Because in the rest year, everybody is equal. Everyone is a gleaner, nobody is sowing and reaping. So you all come to the fields together to gather what God has has provided. And all the slaves, people that would find themselves enslaved or in indentured servanthood, we would be freed. And all the land would be returned. So everything is recovered or restored. So imagine for 49 years, maybe you, you, know, you, you got really unlucky and your, your farm flooded. And so you had to go and sell your farm to someone else. You would get back on that 49th or 50th year. And maybe you, know, you, you uh, lost a bunch of, of your money or your cattle. Maybe you, know, you were unlucky or maybe you, know, you were just unwise. Maybe every year your dad was like, you know what? We're putting it all on the Canucks this year. They're going to win it. And you're like, they'd never win it, Dad. It just never happens. And every year, he keeps doing it. You may may know some people like this. Um, But um, the idea is you've lost everything. On that last year, you get it back. Your family gets it back. The land is restored to how it was supposed to be. And it's this picture of ultimate rest. That the things that divide us, the things that put us one up and one down with each other are no longer the truest things about us and we're reset to this vision of shalom. In, in God, we experience freedom. We experience restoration and we experience abundance. Now, As far as we know, this jubilee never actually happened. Israel never actually celebrated it. And God warns them in in all of the books, but in Leviticus, he says, look, if you don't keep your end of the covenant, things will go disastrously for you. It's not going to be good news. And that's exactly what happens. The people, they enter the land, but eventually they're kicked out. They're exiled. And one of the theologians I was reading says, an exile is basically like an upside-down jubilee. The arrows go back exactly the same way. That rather than being in the land, they're exiled from the land. Rather than being in a place of abundance, they become poor. Rather than being free, they go back to being slaves. And eventually, even though the people of God come back into the land, really sharp people within uh, Israel realize that there's something about us that's, that's just off as humans. Maybe, maybe the demon is in a little bit deeper than we might like to think. Because we long for Jubilee. We're people who are made for jubilee, and they even have the blueprint for jubilee, but there's something within us as people that just can't get us there, that we never actually get around to celebrating it. And so in the mouth of the prophets, which is Isaiah is one of them, this this year of the Lord's favor becomes something even bigger than this 49th year celebration. It becomes a cosmic jubilee. This great hope that one day this Messiah will come. And that he will start a jubilee that won't just last for a year, but it will last forever. And that every person who's enslaved, whether you're a true, like a slave, or whether you're just someone that, as part of the human existence, you know that there's just a dark force in and around our world. That things are not the way. And that the entire world that's broken, as Paul says, that it's just groaning, will be restored. And that the barren forests will grow, and the poor and the destitute will be raised up. And God himself will rebring Eden into our world. Jesus uses the word paradise, or paradisos. He can, we can re-enter paradise with God and with one another. Walter Brueggemann, who is uh, a great uh, Old Testament um, commentator, says this about Jubilee. He says, Jubilee was one of the oldest dreams of Israel. More than just an idea, more than just a celebration, it was a dream, it was a vision. One of the oldest dreams of Israel, waiting to be dreamed again. There's this longing and this deep, deep yearning that one day Jubilee will come. So Jesus is referencing this story when he reads this passage. And then, it says, verse 20, He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. And multiple commentators that I read and listened to said, this is like the mic drop moment for Jesus. If you didn't think commentators were cool, sometimes they can be. They use words like mic drop. Um, even I was kind of surprised. I was like, really? Okay. Um, But this is the mic drop moment. And this version of of our scriptures actually does a really great job of, of capturing what it says in the original languages. That something is happening today, in this very moment, as you listen, as this is being said in the person of Jesus, something is happening. It has been fulfilled that spools out from that moment all the way to today. That there's an invitation for us to live into this. Something is happening here. So what's the response to Jesus? to this announcement of what he's going to do and that he's fulfilled it. Verse 22, they're all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. And maybe this is how you feel when you hear about this invitation of shalom and of jubilee, like this excitement, this yearning, this hope, this longing inside of you. And that's what they first experienced. But if we zoom ahead, just six verses later, listen to what's said. Verse 28, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, brought him to the edge of a, cliff, of a hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. Something happened in these six verses that set the people from being excited, maybe that excitement that you feel, to wanting to kill Jesus. And so I want to look at it. What, what happened in these verses that got people from amazed and excited to absolutely enraged? What, what happened that they went for being for Jesus to being absolutely dead set against him, wanting to kill him. And I want to pull out two things, I think, that led to outrage in the original audience that I think also have some relevance for us today. So, the first is this. Let's look at, again at verse 22. They were all speaking well of him, and they were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. But it, the sentence continues. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? And I think the first reason that they reject Jesus and his Jubilee announcement is because of, I would call it, a critical spirit. A critical spirit. They look at Jesus and they say, yeah, like, we want Jubilee, but you're bringing Jubilee? Like, aren't you you a carpenter? Didn't you and your dad build my garage? Like, you're going to bring the Jubilee? Now, I want, and it's this critical spirit that stops them from going all in with Jesus. Now, I want to distinguish something here really quickly for us that's important, in my opinion, There's a difference between what I'm going to call healthy skepticism, if you go to the next one, and a critical spirit. In my opinion, healthy skepticism can be characterized like this. It says, like, you know, I'm not really sure if what you're saying is true, but I'm I'm interested, and I'd love to hear more. It's a leaning-in kind of posture. And so this posture is always wise, and it's always welcomed by Jesus. If you continue to read about Jesus' ministry, you'll see that he continually uh, interacts with and invites people with healthy amounts of skepticism, into his fold. And he says the same thing to every person. Come, come, follow me. Come and see what's going on. Of course you're going to have questions. And so if that's you today, I hope you hear the same invitation from Jesus if you're a person who functions with skepticism. But for me, a critical spirit is a different thing. Now there's overlap, as you can see, with a Venn diagram, but a critical spirit is different. It's it's kind of this idea of saying, like, yeah, right. I'm I'm not that gullible. I'm not going to believe that. And it's a way of, instead of leaning in, it's a way of distancing yourself and distinguishing yourself. And so instead of a, a posture of openness, it's like this, like arms closed. You can think of it like that. Leaning away. And it says to Jesus, you know, prove it to me. Prove to me. Prove to me that you are who you say you are. Prove that you love me. Prove it often by doing what I want you to do. And what it does is it puts Jesus, who the Bible says is the truth himself, on trial. And it makes me the ultimate judge of what's true and what's not. And here's the really important thing for where we're going this morning. Instead of a critical spirit, rather than fanning the flames, as Paul says, of faith, of passion, of hope, of love towards Jesus and his family, what a critical spirit does is it cools everything down. It puts a distance between me and Jesus and me and God's family. Now, I'll be really honest here. I'm a person who struggles with a critical spirit. And so this question, as I've prepared just for myself, has been one that I've been praying through for this past couple weeks. God, why do I have a critical spirit? And and I don't want to. I don't want to have a critical spirit. And so uh, here's one thing I've realized, and I'm just speaking for me. This is just like I didn't have time to get to counseling this week, so this is just (laughs) free. I'm just sharing with you guys. You're all registered, right? Um... Let me just share two reasons that I've come up with in my own, for myself, why I struggle with a critical spirit. And maybe there's some parallels with you. The first reason is just because of my personality. So I'm uh, probably an Enneagram 5 wing 4, which if you're not familiar with Enneagram language, just means that I'm a bit of a natural killjoy. I'm just not a lot of fun to have at parties. And uh, as I was thinking and praying through it this week, one story came up that I remembered. So I was a campus pastor uh, at UBC before I was here. And um, one time, we, we got invited to this huge uh, um, youth event, like, uh, student event. It was held at Rogers Place. There was, like, 10,000 kids there or whatever. And I remember that it was on a Monday night because uh, there was a Monday night football game I really wanted to watch, which instead I had to go to this thing. So we went to this thing. Like I said, there was like, 10,000 students. We took a whole bunch of kids from UBC. And... Um, there was this, this you know, hyped-up band, you know, and uh, Louis uh, Giglio, or Giglio, I don't know what his name is, the guy, this, he's like A-plus speaker, right? He's there, he's hyping everybody up. And so it's just very live in there. And this student comes to me towards the end, and he says to me, like, just, just like passion on his face, and he says to me, like, isn't this so amazing? Like, just 10,000 people praising God in this place. And I said to him, and I remember this moment very clearly, yeah, let's see what happens on Tuesday. I know, right? Now, two things about that moment. The first, so that just gives you insight into how fun I am as a person. Um, I, I was right. And the student said to me, it was actually a changing moment for him, because he said to me later on, he's like, you know, it really didn't make any change. We had a fun night, and that's it. And it changed how he thought about ministry, that we're not just trying to get a whole bunch of people in a room. We want to see people following Jesus. So I was right. Just keep that in mind, okay? Okay. <laughs> And enneagram fives often are. It's our cross to bear. I am so sorry. <laughs> but here's the thing I remember. I remember specifically in that moment when I said that to him, watching his face just like droop and just the light come out of his eyes. And I felt terrible. And the reason was because I, as a campus pastor and, and today, one of my things I pray for is that people would become passionate about Jesus that they would love Jesus, and that they would be willing to give whatever for him. And in that moment, I stole it from him because of my critical spirit. I was right, but I stole it from him in my critical spirit. I just need to emphasize once again, I was right. Okay? <laughs> but I stole it. And that's, that's, that's something I need to watch out for in my personality. But here's the deeper thing that I realized this week as I was praying for it. If a critical spirit for me is part of leaning away, and you may have different reasons, different ways that you lean away from God. Why do I lean away? And here's one of the things that I realized this week reading through this passage and praying it is because I actually don't need to be desperate with Jesus. My, I love the idea of Jubilee, but my life is not crying out for Jubilee, to be honest. I can afford to have a critical heart, a critical spirit. I have a privileged life, and therefore I have a privileged faith. And I don't really need Jubilee because I'm not really poor. Like, our family's not knocking it out of the park financially. But if, this, if we find out tonight that Jesus isn't real, like, we'll wind this up and I'll go get another job and things will probably be just fine, to be honest with you. And I don't long for Jubilee because I'm relatively free. I don't feel like I'm enchained or enslaved in places in my life. And I don't hear this as good news because I'm not blind. In fact, I think I see quite well especially as an Enneagram 5. I don't have any emotions clouding my mind. And so I can just see things super, super clearly. And so I can afford to have a critical spirit. Or as Dallas Willard famously called it, a middle-class spirit. And so I don't have to be passionately all-in with Jesus. I don't need to. Sure, there's a few things I could use some help with, you know, if he's interested. But I'm doing okay in general. And in fact, if I'm really honest with you and honest with myself, I know deep inside of my heart, that if I go all in with Jesus, he's going to ask something of me. I'm going to lose something. And I don't want to. So it's easier to keep my distance. And for me, the way that I do that is with a critical spirit. I don't know what it looks like for you. We say, maybe it's just general apathy. Or you say, yeah, Jesus, you can be the center of my life, but realistically, he's not. And, I, and my, my strong guess is maybe it's not a critical spirit, but that I'm not alone. And one of the reasons I know this is because last year, Christianity Today said the book of the year was this one, Overcoming Apathy. If you can't read the subtitle, it says, Gospel Hope for Those Who Struggle to Care. It was the book of the year for those of us who are middle class in spirit. And here's the terrible conundrum that I find myself in, and I, I don't know if you can relate. I really want to believe. I want to hope. I want to hope with everything inside of me. I don't want to be the guy who stands there and says to Jesus, hey, aren't you just a carpenter, though? I want to be like some of the other people we'll see in the story, like the woman who just comes and washes Jesus' feet with her tears. I want that to be me. I want to hear the call of Jesus to come and follow, and I I want to not just walk. I want to go running. I don't want to be the person who says, you know, maybe next week is better because I have Pilates later. I just can't really make time for it right now. And these things, these two things, this desire to keep Jesus at a distance, and on the other hand, this longing for him to come close, they go to war in my life. They war inside of me that both of them are true at the same time. You know, what about you? What stops you from hearing this proclamation of Jesus as good news? What stops you from taking it seriously? What causes you to keep Jesus at a distance? And could this be, from Luke, an invitation from Jesus for you, even if you feel that tension, just right now, just to name that tension and what it is, to follow Jesus so that this proclamation of what he says actually becomes something that we rejoice and go running for. So that's the first reason is, is a... A critical spirit for me, or just something that keeps Jesus at a distance, uh, stops us from hearing this Jubilee celebration. Let's quickly look at the second reason we might miss Jesus' Jubilee invitation. The passage Jesus is reading from is from Isaiah 61. So it's, the Spirit of God is on me, and then it ends by saying, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus reads that passage, he stops right there, and he sits down, and it says, everybody is looking at him. And, and the, uh, the commentators that I read say, there's lots of different reasons why people might have been looking at him. But one of them is because Jesus basically stops right in the middle of a quote. So it's like saying, for God so loved the world that he, then I just stop and sit down. And you're like, yeah, there's kind of more to that. Didn't you go to seminary? Um, So the passage continues, and it says this. The Spirit of God is on me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance. Jesus doesn't mention that part. And the rest of Isaiah 61 picks up on this theme. Listen to how it's translated in the Aramaic version, which is probably the version that's read by, by most people at that time. This is the rest of Isaiah 61. It says, You shall eat the possessions of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall be indulged. You'll feast on their best. You'll take it. And instead of being ashamed and confounded, two for one, the benefits I promise I will bring to you, and the Gentiles will be ashamed, who are boasting in their lot. And Jesus does not quote any of this. He just stops. Mid-sentence, sits down and says, This is fulfilled. In your hearing. And the people are enraged. Because their idea, they would be very familiar with Isaiah 61. In fact, many of the people would probably have the whole Hebrew scriptures memorized. They would know that there's more to the sentence. And so they they are longing for a Messiah to come. They are hoping for a jubilee. Yes, praise God, come, 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 Messiah. But the, the payoff for them was that these nations who are oppressing them, the Romans, for example, who have their fingers on top of the Jewish people, that they would be embarrassed. That the Messiah would come and he would destroy them. And that they would be raised to this place of privilege once again. They will be the victor and someone will be the loser. And the assumption is made that when Jubilee comes, which they hope it will, it will be for me. It will be for us and not for them. For those people. And Jesus, by stopping mid-sentence, makes it clear that he's not interested in that. That's not the way it's going to happen. And we're not going to take a time to look at the passage, but Jesus basically says, you know, it's like back in the day when there was all these uh, people who were widows inside of Israel, but Elijah went to a widow outside of Israel and helped her. And it's like back in the day when there was all these people who had leprosy within Israel, but Elisha, he went and he healed Naaman, who was a warlord from another country. And Jesus is saying, the Jubilee is coming but you are not the center of it. In fact, it's not just for you. It's for everyone. This is a cosmic jubilee. And so it's going to come to you, but it's not going to come in the way that you think, in a direct way. It's going to come in a roundabout way, and it may not align with the dreams that you have. And the response of the people is very evident. No way. I am not interested in that kind of jubilee. My hopes are attached to a very different story, and you must make that come true or you're not our Messiah. And again, I think there's a word for us here. Let me paraphrase a quote that I love from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says this, When we love our dream of Jesus and his mission, more than we love the actual Jesus and his actual mission, we end up destroying Jesus, even though our attentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Let me read it one more time. When we love our dream of Jesus... And his mission, what he came to do. More than we love the actual Jesus who stands before us in these passages. And his actual mission and what he came to do. We have no choice but to destroy Jesus. Even though our intentions may be honest, earnest, and sacrificial. That is exactly what's happening in this passage. The actual Jesus stands in front of them, but he will not fit into the dreams that they have. And so they have no choice but to destroy him. He's challenging something very deep within them. And the same danger lurks, I think, in our lives, in my life, in our life as a church. That our dreams of Jesus, the way that we hope that he will work in the world to make our lives smooth, to make me successfully a middle-class person, to afford to live in Vancouver, to make my kids good kids, whatever those good dreams that we have and the ways that we want Jesus to come help us in, they can get in the way of the living ruling and reigning Messiah who comes and says, I'm about freedom, restoration, jubilee, which may come at the cost of your dreams, of a smooth life, of your middle-class hopes. Let me just give you two ways that I think this can play out in our lives, just to try to make it very practical as we close. I'll just give you the first. Again, it's from my own life. Like I said, this is just a, I just looked at today as a massive counseling session, so thanks for being here. Um, so when I started pastoring, uh, I, I, I prayed for, like I said, I've been in ministry for, for about 18 years, and I've prayed every, everywhere I've gone that, that God would show up, that there would be revival in, in me and in us. And so when I became the pastor of this church about three years ago, I prayed for that as well. I prayed for that here. I pray for you, and I pray for you every week. My name If you're not on that list and you want to get on that list, I'm happy to uh, please come chat with me afterwards. And so I pray for this church. I pray for you. I pray that God would be present with you. I pray that he would give me his love for you because you're pretty hard people to love, so I just need some help. (laughs) And I pray that God would show up and that there would be just a passion for him in this place. And I was riding my bike early on and as I was praying for, for this church, and it wasn't like an audible voice, but I was riding by a whole bunch of other churches. And it's like God said to me, What if I answer your prayer for revival, but I don't answer it here? I answer it down the road. And I went, are you okay with that? And to be honest, it's a hard thing for me to think about. It's a hard thing for me to say yes to. Because my dream is that it happens here. And my dream of God's kingdom is actually limited to this small little place. And I'm less interested, or I was less interested, in the kingdom that he has of many other churches and many other families all across Vancouver and across the world, where maybe revival will break out and we can say yes and amen. We long for that here too. But it was one of those moments where my dream collided with the dream of God. And I've been praying for our community in preparation for this series. I have a feeling that this word... A phasis that, that Luke uses so often, this this word that means freed or forgiven or released or set free is, is going to be an important one for many of us here in this room. Because for a few of us in this room, I think, what we need to hear, maybe most of all from this story, is that God Jesus comes and He announces that you are free, that you are forgiven, that you're liberated, that you can go. And maybe for some of you, there's just places in your life where that's just the thing you need to hear from Jesus. But as I've been thinking and praying through it, and even just thinking about my own life, I think there's another invitation for us. We're not struggling with being freed or forgiven for many of us. So the invitation actually for us is to free other people. To learn to forgive. These places where we have kept people enslaved in our hearts. In our minds, the places where we're holding on to bitterness and we're not willing to let go. And that Jesus comes to us, and, and I'm not saying you have to do it today, but I hope through the process of, of looking at this book that you can hear the invitation of Jesus to say, I offer Jubilee, I offer it to you, I offer you my forgiveness, but I'm asking you to forgive as well. To take this story and release yourself from that burden carrying it, and release the people that you're holding hostage. And I think there's an invitation for us. Are you ready to go where Jesus wants to go in this series? Are you ready to do what God wants to do in order for cosmic jubilee to take hold? Joel, you got a question? Hmm, uh, It's a good question. Some people probably say so. It's actually the oldest personality test in the world. And so it's a very ancient thing, and it's got a lot of spiritual correlates. So it does kind of look like witchcraft, though, if you've ever seen the picture of the Enneagram, because it's got two triangles, and so it does look at it. But uh, it kind of looks like a pentagram star, but that's not what it is. It's just a way of understanding ourselves, understanding each other, and then also understanding God's, uh, how God's at work in our world. And, and I think one of the things that's really helped me to do is to see how I'm a special snowflake, and I really am the best. Um, <laughs> No, I'm joking. It, it helps me actually see how I'm not and how, how sometimes I miss other people, both in my marriage and in life and work. And so, yeah, we can chat more about it uh, after if you have questions. Let's close by saying this. It says in this passage again, when they heard this, everybody in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove Jesus out, and brought him to the edge of the hill that the town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. This is Luke at the beginning of Jesus' ministry doing some foreshadowing, some ultimate foreshadowing to show us who Jesus is and what Jubilee will cost to bring. Because this time Jesus escapes on this story, but, spoiler alert, later on he won't. He'll be mocked. He'll be shamed. He'll be stripped naked. He'll become enslaved. He'll become poor. He'll become broken. And he'll be murdered, and everybody will leave him. Because what kind of good is that Messiah? What kind of good is that announcement of Jubilee to anybody? But Luke is trying to give us a clue in this passage. Because the year of Jubilee, as most people there would know, it actually centered on another celebration, which is the Day of Atonement. And it's a day where the sins of the people would be forgiven, and the people would be released from the burdens that they carried. And those who are separated from God and from each other would actually be brought one back into oneness together. And on the Day of Atonement, Isaiah 61 would be read, the same passage that Jesus is reading. And a sacrifice would be made to absorb the sin and the brokenness and the oppression in the world, to set people free, to open their eyes and to bring restoration. And this passage is giving us an ultimate foreshadowing that this king has come. And he has, through his blood and his body, which we'll celebrate in just a moment, brought us into Sabbath. He offers that to us into oneness, into freedom, and into light. And it comes not by keeping him at a distance or limiting to him to our dreams and the way that we think he will act, but by following him. And this passage is setting up the process by following him into his death and coming out into life on the other side. Because that's where we find that jubilee is more than just a good idea, more than just a passage we read, more than just a dream, but a reality a reality that we're invited to participate in as new creatures in the new creation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage. And um, I pray, it is challenging. It's been challenging to me this week as I thought through it, prayed through it. And uh, I pray that you would help us to hear anew this invitation to who Jesus is, to what his mission is, to who we are to be as the church, and I pray that uh, you would help us to receive him. So in this time as we respond, would we confess the areas in our lives that we're holding on to, our visions of who you are, which may be good, we may be nice, but they don't actually align. May you help us to let go of those so that we may see you clearly and reflect you even more. Pray for the places that we keep ourselves at a distance from you. For me, for a critical spirit, for those of us here, there's many different ways that we just try to keep you. We stiff-arm you and keep you at arm's length. May we drop those arms now as we hear your call, as we sing together, as we give, as we pray with one another. May we instead learn to embrace you, to lean in, to bring our questions, and so that we may become a people who not only hear this invitation for Jubilee, but become a people who offer it to others that your glory and your light and your goodness would be shining from this place. So we ask you to lead and to guide us, to correct us, to minister to us in this time, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.